is a very good afternoon. It's Niall Boylan. A little bit of a special for you today because, of course, whether you knew it or not, it is World Menopause Month. And not only World Menopause Month, but on the 18th, we celebrate World Menopause Day. And I know you guys are going, oh, I'm turning this off. No, I don't want to hear about women's issues. Well, see, it's really important, lads, that you listen and you learn because it's really important because you have a mother, you have a sister, you have a wife, you have a girlfriend, and they will all go through menopause at some point in their life, whether they want to or not. Just like you guys, and I don't want to be unfair to you, you will go through what they call the andropause. Some people refer to that as the midlife crisis, but it is, there is an andropause where your testosterone levels drop, you lose a little bit of energy, maybe a little bit of the libido, you know, as well. So you might want to get seen to two, and we're not going to ignore that, we'll do that another time, but let's focus on the ladies for now, because it is World Menopause Month. And coming up on Friday, October the 20th in Cork City Hall, there is an event, uh, there's a summit that you can go to, and also in Dunleary, this weekend, on Saturday the 14th of October, is a summit as well. One person who will be a Appearing there is an expert and a good friend of the show, Dr. Quiva Hartley, who joins me. Quiva, good evening to you. Hello, how are you doing? Well, you're, you're having a busy time. I know you're not in Ireland at the moment. You have a nice background there. We're not going to have a look at it at the moment, but you're away at the moment. And you're away for a conference at the moment, of course, which is happening in Paris, I believe. Yeah, that's right. It's a hard life, Niall. Somebody has to do it. So I'm away in Paris at the moment at a, the FIGO conference. So it's an international gynecology conference. So it's great. Yep, lots of really good speakers. We're wrapping up today, but um, didn't want to miss out the chance of joining you for the conversation. So I said, look, I'd, uh, I'd dial in from here if that's okay. You're very good. Now, of course, the World Health Organization and, you know, in, should I say, in collaboration with International Menopause, the Menopause Society, have established that we have a World Menopause Month. And I think it's really, really important because there was a time where we didn't talk about the menopause. It was like talking about periods. It was one of those things that was kind of shameful. And, you know, oh, that's a woman's issue. We don't speak about that. It has got a lot better, hasn't it? Yeah, I think the last few years, things have absolutely changed. There's loads of reasons for that. I think it's more than just the menopause bit of this itself. I think some of it is just the attitude to women's health has really changed. I don't know, is that kind of coincident with we've seen an uptick in female gynecologists and, you know, people, women, I suppose, taking up the post of consulting gynecology posts in Ireland. And that maybe has had an influence. I don't know. I think maybe society in general has changed how they feel about women's health. Women have become more vocal. The internet has allowed them to become more educated. All these things have fed into it. From a yeah. menopause perspective, mm-hmm. we've, we've changed how we look at things like hormone therapy. And I think that's had a really big impact too. So it's great to see that things have changed. I mean, Google has helped as well, but Google can also be a hindrance as well, because of course, most of us, <laughs> including women, will go to Dr. Google every now and again if we have a problem. And sometimes that can give us our skewed version of what we should and shouldn't be doing when it comes to treatment. Yeah, it's a friend and foe. I think in one way, I think it's fantastic. It, it allows people connect a huge part of going through things like menopause. It's, it's actually really isolating. I think some women feel really lonely and they don't know who to talk to. And so they can find support that way, which is really helpful. And then the other is the education piece. But again, that's double edged because you can get you know, well-informed and learn the right things. But unfortunately, there's also a lot of misinformation. Um, so you have to sift through some of that, you know, not accurate stuff to find the stuff that is reliable and is evidence-based and maybe that's where you know podcasts like this come in where you kind of help women sift through some of that misinformation it's so important let's get to the misinformation very briefly okay people are going to google stuff and they're going to see hrt bad 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 in some cases they'll find that online and this relates back to a study that was done a long long time ago that has since been debunked explain that a little just a little bit for me and what actually happened there and why there was this period of time after that particular study where both doctors, GPs, gynecologists, and women themselves had this kind of fear of HRT. 
Yeah, HRT is a really, so HRT is hormone replacement therapy and it's the kind of backbone of how we treat a lot of menopausal symptoms. And it has a really interesting history. It was really, it really took off in the 1960s. It was back in the 40s that they actually were able to, in a lab, produce estrogen, which is what is, again, the backbone of kind of our hormone therapy. And then in the 60s, there was a fellow called Robert Wilson who wrote a book called Feminine Forever. I mean, like shudder, but anyway. Yeah. Um, so he wrote this book, yeah, Feminine Forever. It was all about promoting women being feminine forever. It's ironic um, a man wrote it, by the it, way. Is, <laughs> like, I, where to yeah. start with that, I know. Yeah. And that really, it, it propelled a lot of hormone therapy and menopause to um, the front of people's minds and it allowed women for the first time to treat menopausal symptoms and it became really popular. And at one point, actually, um, in the very early 90s, so if you go forward another sort of 20, 30 years, estrogen, HRT specifically, was the most prescribed medication in the States, like above aspirin, above cholesterol tablets, above everything else. So that study that you're referring to, that was the Women's Health Initiative, an absolutely huge study, like a few hundred thousand women were enrolled in it. It was done in the States and they published their first findings in 2003. And as part of that, the media really ran with this headline that HRT causes breast cancer, which is slightly misleading. And like a lot of things, it's, you know, in life, it's a lot more complicated and nuanced than that. But that was the take home message that a lot of people heard and took from it. And within probably three or four years or so, HRT prescribing had fallen by 50 to 60 percent around the world. And we have a couple of generations of women then who really missed out on mm -hmm. uh, having an option for treating their menopausal symptoms. That was revisited and republished in 2012. And that's where our kind of modern thinking of HRT comes from, because in 2012, when they looked at it, they realized, actually, when you break down the numbers, you know, the average age of woman in that study was 63, which is a little bit older than the average age of woman I would see in my clinic. Mm -hmm. And when you break it down, you know, women who took estrogen on its own. So these would be women who've had a hysterectomy. They didn't have that same, you know, significant increased risk of breast cancer. And the women who took combination HRT, which is what we give to most women, the increase of breast cancer that they had in absolute numbers was actually really small. So we learned an awful lot from revisiting that study. And I think that's, you know, it's taken 10 years for that to trickle back into general practice. And a lot of that from what I believe, uh, the kind of fault in that too was a lot of that I believe was for women who may have been predisposed to breast cancer in the first place, that it increased their uh, opportunities, when I say opportunities, their chances of getting breast cancer. In other words, at the moment currently, if you go to a doctor with HRT or, or looking for HRT or, or you're going through the menopause and you maybe there's a, a genetic history of breast cancer in your family, well, they will take a second look at it and they will decide whether you, you should get it or not because you obviously have a higher risk. And I believe in that study, they didn't look at that. They said, well, you know, it's kind of for everybody, whereas really the risk is for those who are already predisposed to breast cancer and it may accelerate that process. Yeah, like it's really interesting from a science point of view, if you like. So HRT, giving someone estrogen and progestin doesn't make them make breast cancer cells, but it can promote the growth of abnormal cells if they're already pre-existing in their breast tissue. Yes. And and it, and it does get nuanced. And I suppose, that, that, you know, for women listening to this or, or men listening to this, but the take home message is that we know a couple of things influence how likely you are to develop breast cancer in the context of being on HRT. Loads of things lead to breast cancer. Your family history, do you smoke, how many pregnancies you've had, your body mass index, how ac active you are, your alcohol intake, like it's a very long list. How okay. lucky and unlucky you are. Sure, sometimes we never have a reason. But in terms of HRT, it's how long you take it for. Like the duration of use is really important and the types 
of hormones, particularly the progestin, the thing that's there to protect your womb, the types of hormone you're prescribed. So that's where counselling women comes in and having that conversation in depth. Okay, for people who don't know, HRT is estrogen, progestin and testosterone, which more recently has become more popular, particularly since Davina McCall went on uh, Instagram and started promoting it to everybody to say that it's changed her life and she had a tube of it in her hand and that boosted sales. The effect. Yeah, the Davina effect. It certainly boosted the popularity of something by something like 600% in the UK, where all of a sudden there was become a shortage of it. But let's deal with them one by one. Progestin, of course, many women who are using the marina coil, do they need to get progestin? Because I remember when we, we spoke uh, during the week, a woman had texted in and she said that she was on the marina coil, her doctor didn't recommend progestin, but her friend was on the marina coil and her doctor did. So if you're on the marina coil, do you need progestin? So if you are on, if you have, a, so the marina coil, small T-shaped device releases a hormone, like you said, progestogen. You're very well versed on, on this, Niall. You're, you know more than some of my patients do. Did I tell you I'm in the um, summit as well? No, I'm joking. <laughs> I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, so if, it can be used for several different things. It's very good at reducing the amount of bleeding that we see. So women with really heavy periods, the marina coil is a godsend for them. It's also very good birth control. So that's another use. But in the context of this conversation, so it can be used as the the bit of your HRT to protect your womb. The problem with giving someone estrogen, estrogen is fantastic. It makes you feel better. It's where most of your benefit comes from. The problem is that it thickens the lining of the womb. So something like marina coil releases progestin and thins and stabilizes the lining of the womb. But it only does that for five years. So at the moment, we don't have evidence that if it's been in more than five years, that you're getting enough of that hormone to protect the lining of the womb. Okay. So someone with a marina coil, but they've had it six years, they will need to take extra progestin. Someone with a marina coil for less than five years does not. Okay. Getting on to estrogen. Estrogen, what effects, I mean, what are the side effects of, of a lack of estrogen in a woman's body? I'm assuming it's kind of, you know, sore bones, aches, tiredness, or hot flushes or flashes, as some people call them. Are they the side effects of that? They're quite individual. Some women mm. will get to menopause, their periods will stop and they won't feel anything. Like they'll feel well and their mental health is fine and their aches and pains are fine and they don't get hot flushes. Not everybody does. But for those who are symptomatic, they usually start in perimenopause. So this is the few years before your periods stop and your estrogen production from your ovary starts to really fluctuate. You actually produce too much at times and too little at others. And you bounce back and forth, kind of ping pong back and forth between these two levels. And that creates an awful lot of mood issues, but a lot of people would call almost like PMS, premenstrual syndrome um, or premenstrual symptoms. Um, so they can get moody or irritable. They might get sore breasts. They might feel bloated. Um, and sometimes their bleeding gets a little bit heavier. Periods can get a bit heavier. And then with your final period, so that's your menopause, then you're really estrogen deficient. Your estrogen is, is, is gone and your ovaries aren't producing that hormone anymore. That's so does it actually stop completely? Does it stop completely, Gwila? So you make estrogen from a few different parts of your body. You make estradiol, a really particular type of estrogen from your ovaries, and that stops completely within a couple of years of your last period. But it usually falls below a threshold the year before the year of your final period so that you become symptomatic. And there's really two issues. One is symptoms. And like you mentioned, hot flashes, night sweats, mood changes, achy joints, all of these are really common. But the other issue is, is um, health changes. And estrogen is a really good protective effect on our cardiovascular system, but also on our bones. Mm -hmm. They're the two things that we see really rapidly change when your period stops. Okay. Um, and for women who are taking that, you, there's many different forms, I suppose. You can take it by tablet, but of course, 
they tried to avoid that, I suppose, due to the fact that I, 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 what I heard was suggested liver problems, depending on the person. Uh, there's gels and there's patches. Which do you recommend for women, generally speaking? And is there a reason why you recommend, you know, the certain delivery methods? Again, I think it's really individual. So you can't sort of say across the board, I'd recommend one type for everybody. The, the transdermal preparations. So these are the preparations that go through your skin. So things like patches or gel, and there's actually a spray as well. You're right, they avoid being metabolized or broken down by your liver. And as a consequence, we don't see a rise in um, proteins that your liver produces that increase your risk of clotting. So we don't see the blood clotting risk and the stroke risk with estrogen through your skin. The only issue with those preparations is that they're a little bit inconvenient and time consuming. So there's plenty of younger women who don't carry high risk of having a blood clot. They're young, they've never had a blood clot, they don't get migraines, they don't smoke, etc. And they might find a tablet an awful lot easier. So one is not bad and the other type good. I get what you mean. really, really individual. Yeah, if you've got a busy life, you don't have 20 minutes to be sitting on the, on the toilet rubbing gel Waiting all over yourself. Waiting to dry, rubbing your gel in, you know, pirouetting around waiting to yeah. dry. I have had a patient who had, um, she came into me saying that she'd had to bring her dog to the vet on multiple occasions because the dog had developed really prominent breast tissue and nipples. And she brought the dog down. They couldn't figure out what it was. Anyway, they eventually figured out she'd been putting her gel on her arms, picking the dog up, rubbing the dog's tummy on the evening. Oh, and over no. a period of months, yeah, I actually read a story of a, a woman, we're going to come to testosterone in a second, who was, she was on testosterone. But I mean, the story started with this guy that was having really increased levels of testosterone and he was 82 and he didn't understand oh. why. And it was <laughs> doing his wife, she was using testosterone and whatever she was doing to him um, was rubbing the testosterone off onto him. So, yeah, sorry, getting back to estrogen. So is there a particular yeah. amount, or can, does everybody take the same amount, you know, when you say we'll, we'll take the gel, for example, and it's, I don't know, one squirt mm. or whatever it is, you know, on your arm or on your inner thigh or whatever it is or abdomen, does, does everybody Everybody take the same amount or is that prescribed differently for different people depending on a blood test result? Um, yeah, so now everybody's on something different usually. I mean, there's obviously standard doses that we're used to prescribing. We try to start everyone on the lowest dose because you want to use the lowest dose where your symptoms are controlled. So that's what you're aiming for. But then mm -hmm. we monitor things. So we bring someone back after three or four months, we discuss their symptoms with them. And if they haven't achieved symptom control, that would be a reason to maybe increase their dose. Now you can use too much and some women will develop, again, almost like PMS type symptoms, breast tenderness and bloating and headaches from being on too much estrogen. And we pair back a little. So it's a bit of trial and error. It's a lot of discussion. Again, that's where kind of having, you know, someone who will give you the time comes in to chat through that with you. Well, isn't, isn't that part of the problem? Sorry for interrupting. Isn't that part of the problem that, okay, you're a menopause doctor, you specialize in menopause uh, and you that's why you have the website, menopausehealth.ie, but you specialize in it. But most GPs don't have that same time, I suppose, to keep having you coming back every three months, check your levels again. Nah, they're a bit high. Let's reduce the dose. Nah, they're a bit low. Let's increase the dose. And women in the meantime are suffering from maybe getting more headaches than they should uh, and they're not changing their mm. dose. That's part of the problem, isn't it? They're not getting that care they need. Yeah, I think GPs have become actually really interested and really well educated on, on this. I think time is probably the limiting factor often for a lot of GPs. They're just juggling so much, it can be really difficult. It's interesting that you mentioned levels. So we try to avoid doing blood levels for estrogen. They're really inaccurate. Um, it, they're, they're just inaccurate. You could check them on, on three different days in a row and get three different results. So that's not really helpful. And we don't have good targets. So there's no particular level that your estrogen should be at. Okay. So we're not treating to a target level. It's really symptom 
driven. Symptomatic, okay. So how a woman describes yeah. her feeling and how she's feeling. So the better she Absolutely. feels, how obviously she feels. the dose yeah. is okay. Um, okay, the yeah. first one, uh, which is, I suppose, the most controversial one because it's off-label. Uh, the problem with it being off-label is that GPs have to take the risk themselves in prescribing it uh, to women because it has never been um, prescribed or it has never been approved for women, which, by the way, is bizarre because I can tell you now, mm -hmm. if there was something that made men better, they'd have it approved overnight. Firstly, why is testosterone not being approved for women and why is it off-label? I'm not sure I know the answer to that, but but you're absolutely right. We don't have a licensed product um, specifically for women here in Ireland. So we actually, we use the product that is licensed for men. Women make a ton of testosterone. We, like We don't make as much, anywhere near as much as men do, but we make testosterone in our ovaries, in our adrenal glands. And so the studies that were done in Australia um, looking at the testosterone levels in women are really interesting. From our mid-30s, nothing to do with menopause at all, our testosterone levels start to fall. We don't know Same why Same as that men, is. yeah. Our testosterone they, levels drop as well. Once we get to 30 or 40 years of age, they start to drop. So we join you with that and we start, mm. we start losing our testosterone as well. And then inexplicably, in our kind of mid to late 60s, they go up. And again, no one really knows why that is. Presumably some evolutionary benefit i don't know makes you stronger makes you i don't know i was I 60 last week are you telling me there's hope for me yet <laughs> is that what you're saying i'm because... telling you there's definitely there's always hope now there's always hope yeah um, okay. so yeah so we all like women start to make more testosterone in their late 60s and we're not really sure why the other baffling thing about testosterone is that not everybody needs it not everybody benefits from it so it's kind of difficult to work out who should take it and who shouldn't use it and again there's a bit of trial and error and discussion around that it's okay. never been proven to be good for anything other than libido just to point that out um but we need more data is really what we need we need more research okay so the things that i suppose testosterone controls you mentioned libido there has been suggestions of energy levels uh certainly in some people i don't know whether they're anecdotal or if they've done placebo mm. test checks on those or not as whether it increases the energy levels or this kind of that women describe this uh, overwhelming tiredness that they get in the middle of the day for example do you think it may help in those situations as well as libido I think at the moment that is anecdote. There's nothing wrong with anecdotal evidence. That's where you, you start. Most of like research starts based on anecdotal evidence. The suspicion that something might be helpful. So, mm -hmm. but all I'm saying is it's just the studies that have been done to date haven't proven that. So maybe the right studies weren't done and the right doses weren't used or the right women weren't prescribed it. We don't know. I do have patients that have benefit from being on it. Absolutely. And then I have plenty of patients who try it and, and it's done nothing unfortunately but i suppose the good thing is that you can try testosterone with very little risk so for women who want to try it for a few months to see did they benefit they can we try and reassure them that they're not going to grow a beard, a beard. and, and, <laughs> and you that know, starts sounding like me all of a sudden yeah yeah because th yeah, these and, okay and email, like to be fair so um, okay well these are the like, side like, effects I yeah if you, i suppose yeah, if a woman like, took the same levels as a man men when men are prescribed testosterone <laughs> it's a lot higher doses right but if a woman yeah. took the same level i I suppose they would see problems with hair loss or hair growth or stubble or whatever it is. But I suppose the symptoms they may get from the very low dose they will be prescribed would be, I suppose, local hair growth more so than than anything else. That's that's absolutely right. <laughs> um, so you can. I'm just laughing because I don't know how you know so much about it. It's fantastic. <laughs> um, so uh, I have a wife. So yeah, <laughs> I have a wife. Okay, good. <laughs> Um, no, it's great. Like this is an important discussion, and and this is where a lot of the misinformation that we that I alluded to at the beginning has come from. I think is around things like testosterone, where we don't know an awful lot as the kind of prescribers yet, and so I think that trickles in to the general public as people not knowing an awful lot, and it leaves gaps for people to fill in those gaps with their own 
knowledge or anecdote or whatever. So, um, but you're absolutely right. So you can get some local hair growth. So usually you're putting about a 10th of what men would apply per day. We put a 10th of that on per day and it's applied usually as a gel and that goes onto your inner thigh. You can get some local hair growth. That's kind of universal. Almost everybody gets that, but it's usually acceptable you know you can move around the area you use and try get around that um some women if they're very prone to acne can develop a little bit of acne at the beginning when you start them on testosterone so we try and warn them about that the more scary things like the deepening of the voice loss of hair in your head so male pattern hair loss um and enlargement of the clitoris those are the three kind of big things that we warn people about and they really only happen if you're using far too much if we're pushing your testosterone level outside of a normal female range yeah, And we measure that. So this is where blood tests do come in. We don't like to measure estrogen levels, but measuring testosterone is very reasonable. Okay. So if a woman is on testosterone, it would be advisable every six months or so to have six her months. levels checked? Yeah. Would that be the, the right? Yeah. Okay. And if the levels are too high, of course, reducing the dose is the answer. If they're too low, you can increase the dose. That's a very hard balance, I imagine, to get, is it? It is. Again, that's where the conversation comes in. And we have to trust our patients. Like my mm. patients are smart. They know exactly what they're doing. I trust them with their estrogen doses. They know to go up a little if they're symptomatic and they know to come down a little if they feel unwell. And mm. I, you know, and the same with testosterone, the number of women, you know, we'll do a level and then we'll call them with the result. And they've already reduced it themselves because they yeah. feel they I'm feel getting too much or, I'm, too much. you know, they know themselves. Yeah. Women yeah. are smart. And with the testosterone, from what I believe, it's not a daily kind of thing they do with the gel. It's kind of every second day, maybe. Or or, do, or is that the way it should be done? Or should they do half the dose every Depends day? Depends on the person. Yeah. Yeah. So some, usually it's daily initially, and then we try and figure out what the right level is for someone. But it, it very much depends on the person. They used to have, like some men can get testosterone pellets, actually like inserted into their skin. Okay. Um, and uh, so there's all these various ways of doing it. But for women in Ireland, typically it's a gel once every day or once every second day. Would you be wouldn't, the kind of you wouldn't advise the pellets, of course, because with the pellets, I imagine it's a case of if the level is too high, you've no way of controlling it because you have to remove the pellet again. So that would be a difficult situation, wouldn't it? Yeah, and there's estrogen implants, actually. Again, they're not available. I don't know anyone who's doing them in Ireland. They, um, I think they exist in the UK, and they would have been around back in the kind of 80s and 90s. They were associated with sending people's levels really high, and then you're kind of stuck with them. You have to get them removed. So um, so the, we've kind of trended away from using them, and, and, and it's kind of better to use the products that people can titrate up and down themselves. In, in Ireland, it seems quite disappointing. I mean, I live in Northern Ireland. Uh, that's where I live now most of the time and it's much easier up here for women to both get prescribed and also get the products as well but in Ireland there seems to be a problem we've spoken to many callers on the air women who have found it so difficult to get oestrogen testosterone particularly testosterone there, there almost seems to be like a shortage of HRT why is that happening? I think it's supply and demand we had a couple of years um, where the patches were in short supply the gel was in short supply it was intensely frustrating to give somebody a lot of counseling they you know they come to a decision about what product they want and then they couldn't get it in the pharmacy or they've been using a particular product without any issue for months and then they have to switch to something else because that was no longer available and we talked to the pharmaceutical reps about this and what we were told was that it was supply outstripping it was demand outstripping supply and they literally just couldn't manufacture enough hormone therapy to keep up with the prescribing rates but that mm-hmm. was global it wasn't just in ireland to be fair so yeah. um 
you know, I'm sure there's localities where it might be more difficult than other places. But in general, it seemed to be across the globe that there was an issue. So we won't quite pick on Ireland on its own. It's, it's. Uh, I think it was, it was wider spread. Because the last thing you want is a woman a feeling better. The last thing you want is a woman on HRT starting to feel better about herself, mm. starting to get her life mm. back. And then all of a sudden the product is not available anymore. And, you know, you go back and you regress again back into where you were before. Yeah, yeah, you kind of dangle a little bit of hope in front of her and she feels fantastic and then you kind of whip it away and it's, you know, um, and we were as frustrated because we have no control over that at all. And I, I also, like, it's impossible for me to keep up with what's available where. So, you know, yeah, it led to, it led to some frustrated patients. But thankfully, I think that has really settled down. It's, it's not perfect, but it is better than it was now. So hopefully onwards mm. and upwards from here. And, and what I was going to say, going forward, does it look like HRT in its current form is here to stay? Or is it likely to be replaced replace with, you know, a tablet, a one size fits all tablet uh, in the future? Are we getting, are we moving on? Are we still developing stuff or are we kind of sitting at where we are now? That's a great question. I don't know of any particularly new products that are coming down the line specifically for things like estrogen. What we do have coming that's really exciting is a non-hormonal product. So a medication not containing hormones that seems to be really, really effective for things like hot flushes and night sweats and even bone density. And for women who've had breast cancer in particular and other hormone dependent cancers where we're trying to avoid HRT prescribing, it would be really nice. I mean, we have some options for them now, but it would be nice to have better options, more mm -hmm. options for those women. So that is something that's definitely in the pipeline. And hopefully within the next six to eight months, we'll have something. And I suppose natural products are always in demand as well. People have mentioned things like maca root and different roots. Do they work or are they any good? Do they actually work? <laughs> Do they work? Yeah. I, I mean, that's a loaded question in a way, because like... I mean, my, so my job is, is conventional medicine. I don't, I'm not a homeopath, I'm not an atropath and all that stuff. But I know looking at the evidence base, obviously on an individual basis, there are women who will get benefit from using um, natural products like you're suggesting or supplements and that kind mm -hmm. of thing. In which case, fantastic. If someone feels better, that's the only endpoint you actually want for them. So I have no issue with things like that. But it's really hard for me to recommend that someone goes home and buys a load of sage or whatever when I can't back that up with evidence you can't make a general recommendation for it yeah. so I don't recommend like we recommend vitamin d as a supplement because everyone needs that look knock yourself out you know, if, you, if you buy a supplement in the pharmacy you buy sage you buy whatever and you feel better fantastic but yeah. from my perspective I'm going to stick to the evidence base I don't think they work for everyone in a general enough way that I could recommend it so I'm going to go with no yeah, and look, and the whole point of this is is that women now are feeling better than they were 30 years ago. I mean, or 40, 50 years ago, when you go back to my mother's time, you know, when a woman got to the age of 60, that was it, her time her time was up and she was walking around with, you know, sore bones, sore arms, sore everything and feeling miserable about herself because basically women were only there to have babies. But now, of course, we live in a much better society where we appreciate women a lot more. Uh, thank you, Viva. We appreciate women and we we believe their lives should be better till they get to, oh, I don't know, 85, 90, just like the rest of us. But we're also the backbone of society to some degree. Like we, you know, as men do, we are fully part of the workforce now. Women work in a way that they never did before, which is fantastic. And they work till retirement age. And, you know, it's so important that they continue to feel well. Um, I'm all, always conscious doing, you know, conversations like this. It's really important to stress that not every woman has a dreadful menopause. And the women that I want to see are the women who need help. Who are, and I, so I see the skewed population of women who are symptomatic. Because obviously, if you're not feeling unwell, you don't come in to see me yeah. because you don't need me, which is great. Yeah. So it's not to kind of scare everyone that they're going to have, you know, women in their late 30s and early 40s shouldn't be 
petrified at home that they're going to run into this absolutely awful phase of their life. It shouldn't be like that at all. Loads of women are fine. It's that if you are symptomatic, you know where to go and you know what to do and you know what your options are. That's the empowerment. And look, normally, as I say, we'd be doing this live and we'd have lots of people texting in questions and they're always the usual questions, of course, and I'm sure you're well used to all those questions about if my mother goes into menopause early, am I going to go into menopause early? I've had a hysterectomy. Do I need to take HRT earlier in my life? And on all those things, there's, there is always going to be people who are, I suppose, are different in that sense and need different types of treatment. And I suppose the best recommendation is either go onto the website menopausehealth.ie or indeed just have a quick Google or talk to your own GP about that. So they should talk about individual cases because there are individual cases, aren't there? Oh, yeah, it is. Very, it is very like any part of medicine. It is really individual. Yeah, it's very difficult to generalize. And, you know, women who have a family history of breast cancer, women who have other medical issues themselves, women who are very young going into menopause, women who are older and are still having symptoms, they're all women that we should be seeing. And I run a complex clinic for, for women like that in the Rotunda Hospital, which is a public clinic that your GP can refer you to. So that's another kind of hopefully good, helpful resource for women if they're looking for some help and some information. Well, listen, thank you very much indeed. By the way, what can they expect to see at the summit if they're heading along on the 14th of October or indeed, um, what was the other date again, the 20th of October in Cork City Hall? What can they expect to see? Loads, thankfully, and loads that isn't me. So they, they're probably going to be sick of hearing me. So there's loads of other people speaking. Ah, we'd who, never uh, be sick are, hearing you, Guiva. Never. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, I won't be sitting with tourists in the background when I'm there. Um, so that'll be good. But um, no, this, it's a really good, both, um, both of these things on the two Saturdays have a great lineup. There's um, talks that are kind of across the board, not just about HRT, about, you know, non-hormonal things, um, long-term health outcomes, different things like that. It's, they're both really good lineups. So I'd encourage everybody who's interested to go along. And I know they're going to be talking about wellness in general, of course, and how, you know, because it's a difficult time for women to go through menopause because your life changes, you become irrational. And sometimes some women can become irrational. I'm sure the men out there are aware of that. And how to basically give people a pass, I suppose. And this is why I mentioned at the start, it's really important for men, you know, to watch this or listen to this as well, because, you know, we all have mothers, sisters, wives, you know, and it's, it's you know, it's important that we understand what they're going through when they go through menopause, because in some cases, not in all, but in some cases, you know, it can have a devastating effect on people's lives. Yeah, it can. And I think, you know, going back to what we were saying about things like the workforce and, you know, I think it can. It has an impact on even if you don't have someone specifically in your life who's struggling with menopause, you're working with someone or, you you know, so mm -hmm. I, it is really important. There's plenty of irrational men out there now too, Niall, to be fair. So oh, well, we can't is, just blame is. women. Yeah, no, no, I'm, um, I'm absolutely hands up. Like, I'm irrational. You know, balanced. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, and a huge part of it is support. I think, you know, I had said at the beginning that this transitionary phase, because it is just another phase of a woman's reproductive yeah. life, that it can be really lonely. It's lonely because you might have different symptoms than your sister did or your friend next door or whatever. And you feel like, well, I have all these symptoms and she's totally different. And who do I talk to about it? So at least if the men around us or those people around us are really educated too, that's important. That's where you yeah. get your support. You know, that's that's yeah. who helps you through this. So yeah, I told you, it's, it's for everybody. Well, listen, thank you very much indeed, Dr. Quiva Hartley. I really appreciate it taking the time because I know you're away at the moment and probably enjoying yourself as well as at the conference and working hard. Uh, somebody has to do it, as you say. Um, thank you very much for taking <laughs> the time to talk to us today for Menopause Awareness Month. Thank you. Okay, thanks. The multi-award-winning Niall Boylan Podcast. Listen live on Facebook, YouTube, and all the usual live stream services. To get in touch, just WhatsApp or text 085 100 2255. The Niall Boylan Podcast. They told me to shut up. Available for download from all your usual platforms.